So I want to start our time together as we look at the Bible, um, asking a pretty simple question today. The question I have for you is, what brings you joy? What brings you joy? Now, maybe joy is kind of something that's been a little bit of a challenge to experience it uh, during this whole pandemic thing that we're dealing with and everything else that seems to be going on in the world and everything that's kind of being bombarded at us in the news and with social media. But just take a moment to think, what brings you joy? And if you're here at the Sunday morning service with the chat open, why don't you just put something in the chat? What brings you joy? You know, is it your family? Your friends, maybe food, maybe it's finances. I kind of unintentionally made all of those start with F. I don't know why, but uh, that's just what came to mind when I was thinking about this. I was looking up the word joy in the dictionary as I prepared for this week's message. And this is how the dictionary defines joy. It describes it as an emotion of great delight or happiness caused by something exceptionally good or satisfying. Let me just say that again. Joy is an emotion of great delight or happiness caused by something exceptionally good or satisfying. So when we think of joy based on that definition, sure, it could be our family. It could be kind of, you know, one of the things that I love doing is on Friday nights, we like to order in food, you know, uh, into our house we, or we go and pick something up and then we do like family board game nights and it just brings a lot of joy, uh, especially when I win and I never do. So I don't get that a lot when we play these games, but it just is so much joy spending time with my wife and with my kids in that kind of in that kind of way on a Friday night. Great, kind of, it's exceptionally good, satisfying. Our family, our friends, food, healthy finances, all those things. But what's fascinating is when we actually study joy in the Bible, the Bible uses the word a little differently than the way the dictionary uses the word. And the Bible defines joy like this. While joy is closely related to gladness and happiness, Joy is more of a state of being than it is an emotion. Joy is the result of a choice. And we see as we study scripture that joy is one of the fruit of the spirit that we read about in Galatians chapter 5. And having joy is ultimately a huge component and a strong part of the experience that we have as being followers of Jesus. So as the dictionary would say, it's, it's just an emotion when something exceptionally good happens to you. The biblical definition of joy is not so much what happens to you, but rather who you are. Rather who you are by the choices that you and I make as followers of Christ. And when you think of joy that way, and we ask the question, what brings you joy? That is a more difficult question to answer. What brings me joy that way, this state of my being, the choices that I make? How do I grow in the fruit of the spirit? What brings joy there? And what brings joy in just my everyday experience as a follower of Jesus? 
That's what I want to focus our time on together today as we continue in our series, Messy Church, Part 2. What we've been doing for the past couple of months now is we've been going through Paul's letter to the Church of Corinth, which in our Bibles is known as 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is a follow-up letter to 1 Corinthians that Paul wrote to the church there because the church was dealing with some really messy situations. You see, false teachers had come into the church and were impacting the lives of the Christians there and were driving people away from the teachings of the apostles, away from the teachings of Jesus, and leading them down a path that was just not good and was creating a big mess in the church. And so as you and I kind of live in a very messy world right now, Paul's words to the church back then still resonate to our hearts and to our spirits today on how you and I can deal with the mess that we find ourselves dealing with. So today I'm going to be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and I'm going to start reading in verse 2. I'm going to read kind of a chunk of of scripture here, and then we're going to unpack it together today. So 2 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 2. Paul writes to the church, he says, Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, and we have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged in all our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done? At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was, because his spirit was, has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. 
and I am glad that I can have complete confidence in you. Let's just pray together as we unpack this and we ask God to really just speak to each and every one of our hearts today. So, Father God, I praise you and thank you that we can come together as a church family here at Greenbelt Online. And Lord, as we look to your word today, I pray that this wouldn't just simply fill our heads with knowledge, but that you would grow our understanding of who you are. You would grow our understanding of, of, of how you want to work in our lives and that you would use this time to change us, to transform how we live, and that it would change how we share the good news of Jesus everywhere that we go. So God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak and comfort and counsel each and every one of us today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I just want to kind of refresh our memory quickly on where we are are here in Paul's letter and exactly what has been going on here. You see, Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthian church, uh, which we have in our Bibles, 1 Corinthians. And really, 1 Corinthians is kind of harsh, <laughs> to, to put it lightly. You see, Paul writes to this church. Um, when he wrote 1 Corinthians, he was in the city of Ephesus. He was kind of on, I think it was his third missionary journey. He's in the city of Ephesus, and, and he gets wind. He catches news of how the church of Corinth is doing, and, and they're not doing well. Uh, they're not doing well at all. In fact, the reason they weren't doing well is because Corinth was a very well-to-do city, very prominent city, and it was an area of the world where there was a lot of money to be made in religion and sex. These two industries were huge in the city of Corinth. There was a lot of money to be made in those areas, and so false teachers were creeping into the church, kind of trying to build up their reputation, build up their credibility, kind of take the church down a different path than where the apostles kind of planted and started these churches and where they wanted these churches to go as followers of Jesus. And so Paul writes this letter to, first, to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians, and it hits a little hard. It hits a little hard. And then Paul writes this second one, this second letter uh, to the Corinthian church while he's in Macedonia. And he writes this in response to the feedback that he received when people read the first letter. Now, what's fascinating about this uh, writing here that's going on is Paul is constantly, constantly, constantly addressing the issue of false teachers. He's addressing this idea of these leaders that are coming in, these men, these women that are coming in and just trying to take the church off, off track. And he's constantly trying to remind them, remind the Christians there of who they are. He's reminding them that they are different than the rest of the world because of their faith in Jesus, that they have become the temple of the living God. And what that means is when they turned from their sin, when they realized that there was this holy God who loved them, that there's this perfect one true God, the creator of heaven and earth, and that he loved them so much that he would send Jesus to die for them, that Jesus would pay for their sin in a way that no religious system could ever pay, <laughs> that Jesus would die when they repent, when they turn from their sin and accepted Christ, 
the Holy Spirit comes in them, gave them spiritual gifts, equipped them to to serve one another and love one another, and they become the temple of the living God. That wherever they go, they bring the full presence of the glory of God with them. And so because of that presence of God with them, they're different. They look different than the rest of the world. They think different than the rest of the world. They believe different than the rest of the world. They act different than the rest of the world. So that 1 Corinthians letter is a little tough because Paul is reminding them who they are and calling them back to live the lives that God has called them to live. Now, a letter like that could really, really backfire on somebody. It really could. I would try to put myself in Paul's shoes thinking that way. You know, just thinking of some people that I've known over the years where you just watch them making bad decisions or you watch someone kind of giving their lives to some bad teaching or following some bad teacher online or, or, or leaving our church to go to another church or another kind of faith and you just kind of watch it just, uh, just, you just know they're on a bad track. And I've never written a letter to somebody. <laughs> who's been on that bad track, even though sometimes my heart has just cried out to do so. But man, a letter like that could so backfire. And that's what this, what we see in this language here that we're just reading here in this passage of 2 Corinthians chapter 7. The reality is, is that the letter did not backfire. If the church got this letter from the Apostle Paul, they realized that they had let a bunch of sin into their lives. They realized that they had let a, a bunch of bad teaching kind of bring them down a bad path. And they turned from it. They repented of it. And so Paul rejoices in that. He celebrates that. He He's over the moon because of that. He's thrilled that that letter led the church to repentance, right? And so it's fascinating how Paul starts this section here in, in chapter 7, verse 2. He goes back to this idea that we, we've talked about before of opening up your hearts to Paul opening up your hearts to your church. He goes back here and he says, make room for us in your heart. And what he's reminding the Corinthians again is there's so many bad teachers out there who do not love you. They don't. They, they just want something from you. They just want to take from you. They want to kind of just bring you down a path that will not benefit you, but will ultimately benefit them. You see, the way false teachers worked back in Paul's day is a false teacher would creep into the life of a church and they would be so loving and they would be so caring. They would be incredibly charismatic in their personality they would be um, just really dynamic. They would be incredibly well-spoken, very fancy words and wordplay, and they would draw people to them. But then the moment someone would start to question them, bang, they would turn on them. They would kick them out. They would drive them away. 
Like no one was allowed to question them. No one was allowed to kind of poke at their teaching and they would just kind of fight back and get rid of them quickly before other people could catch wind of what they were talking about. And then these false teachers would slowly begin to corrupt the minds and the hearts of those who were, were close to them. And then ultimately, um, the false teacher would exploit them. And what's fascinating is I've had the privilege to talk to people uh, because of Greenbelt Online, have talked to people all over the world. And, and that same pattern that happened 2,000 years ago in the city of Corinth still happens all over the world today where false teachers show up into a community and they seem so loving and they seem so caring and they're trying to draw people to them. They don't allow anyone to speak into their lives. They don't accept any kind of authority over them. And then suddenly they begin to corrupt people's minds and hearts. And then ultimately they exploit them. They take their money. They kind of take, you know, they build up their own kingdom. They build up their own thing and not because they love and they want to sacrifice for people, but because they just want all of this for themselves. And that's why Paul uses that exact language here in the beginning part of chapter 7. He goes, we've not wronged anyone. We've not corrupted no one, and we've not exploited no one. Right? And this is Paul, again, kind of defending uh, his ministry, defending the way they have taught people, the way that they have called people out on their sin is radically different than the way these false teachers did it. And then what's interesting about this, this reminder that Paul gives them is Paul highlights again some of the suffering that they went through, some of the difficulty that they've experienced while they were in Macedonia. But Paul, even in the suffering, even in the things that they're struggling with, Paul is experiencing great joy. He's experiencing joy that has no bounds. Now, again, based on the two definitions of joy that we looked at right at the beginning of this, right? Well, is the joy that Paul talking about, is he talking about this kind of exceptional good thing that was happening to him? And that's why he's joyful. No, because he's got a whole bunch of conflicts. Like he's dealing with conflict on the outside. He's dealing with fear on the inside, right? He's trusting that God has got to bring comfort to him because he feels so downcast some days in doing ministry. So it's not that kind of joy because of his circumstances. Rather, this joy that knows no bounds is coming from the choices that Paul makes and coming from his relationship with God is coming from his identity with Jesus because of what he is seeing God do in the life of the Corinthian church. And so the big idea that I want us to unpack together for the remainder of our time together is this, is there is no greater joy for the church than seeing repentance in action. There is no greater joy for the church than seeing repentance in action. Now, I just uh, to unpack this a little bit, I want to talk for a bit about repentance. It's a little bit of a loaded word, and depending on your Christian experience, whatever Christian background you grew up in, or maybe the non-Christian background that you grew up in, um, repentance 
can sound pretty ugly to some to some people. So I took a little bit of a definition from it out of one of my commentaries here, and uh, as I was studying for this, and I want to read this uh, this definition of what repentance means. Okay? So the need for repentance is highlighted in Jesus's earliest preaching. We read in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus said this. He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the gospel. The repentance is rooted in the human consciousness of sin. An awareness of falling short of a standard, relational brokenness and alienation and fear of judgment. Whether motivated by inner guilt or shameful loss of faith, repentance involves attitudes and acts that aim at setting things right. Coupled with confession, repentance is involved in the process of receiving forgiveness from God through Jesus Christ and provides a model for person-to-person reconciliation as well. We just kind of unpack that definition just a little bit. This idea of repentance, that it's, it's not just so much this heart thing, but it turns into an action thing where we aim to make things right. Where we aim to make things right. You see, religion, regardless of what religion belief, religion is all about make, trying to make something right. You see, the Jewish uh, faith, way back when, like way back at the beginning of your Bibles, in the time of Moses, in the time of David, in the time of the Temple of Solomon. See, what the people of Israel were doing is they had this sacrificial system put in place to make things right with God. You see, they would sacrifice a lamb. They would sacrifice some doves. They would sacrifice a goat in order to have their sins paid for. It's called atonement. That's the fancy theological term for it, is that for me to be innocent, blood has to be spilt. And because I have this sin, because I realize that I'm falling short of some kind of holy standard, because I know that my relationship with God is broken because of my sin, there's got to be this sacrifice that happens. And so that's what this sacrifice was about. It was about making things right with God. And they would sacrifice animals, and they would sacrifice animals, and they would sacrifice animals for generations. But that was a picture of what was to come that one day God would send the perfect lamb, the lamb without blemish, the lamb without sin, the lamb that had absolutely nothing wrong with him. And that lamb would be led to the slaughter for all of humanity's sin. That's why when John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, was baptizing people in the Jordan River, and when Jesus came to him to be baptized, John cried out with a loud voice. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He knew exactly who Jesus was and what Jesus had come to do. Jesus came to make things right, to restore relationship with God. And so we see that theme play out in all the teachings of the New Testament. Right? This, the New Testament suggests this turning, this repentance, this confession that you and I make because of what Jesus has done for us. 
that we realize that our relationship with God is broken because of our sin. And that sin has separated us, has made us aliens from God. But because of Jesus' sacrifice, we turn from sin and we turn back to God. Right? In, in uh, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it talks about our personal confession of sin directly to God. That we turn to God when we sin and we repent of it. We see other passages in the New Testament that talk about inviting other people. Inviting our church family, a friend, a counselor, a minister to hear our confessions together. Right? James chapter 5 uh, verse 16 talks about confessing your sins to one another in an act of repentance. Right? We see the story of the prodigal son who goes away and spends all his money on wild living. And when he's finally emotionally and, and uh, financially bankrupt, he returns to the open arms of a loving father in repentance. We see this unconditional love there. Right? And even Jesus, when he taught his followers to pray, he taught them to pray, God, forgive us our transgressions. Forgive us our sins as we forgive the people who sin around us. Even the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, proclaims the need for the church to be in repentance. It's all about kind of the individual and corporately as the church that we need to be living lives of repentance. I think what happens a lot in our Christian experience is that we see repentance as something for the new, the new Christian. The person who just heard about Jesus for the first time. The person who just comes to that realization. It's like, oh my goodness, I never thought of this idea that my sin is keeping me alienated from a God who loves me. That my sin has kept me far from God. And, and when that kind of, that emotion evokes in their life and they turn from that and they accept Jesus, that they had that moment of repentance. And that's an amazing thing. And if you're here today, I would actually encourage you to do that even today. And I'm going to give you a moment to do that shortly. But um, repentance is not simply about a one-time thing. You see, the reason why the Apostle Paul, why his joy knows no bounds, is because he's seeing repentance in action in the church of Corinth. Right? He talks about sorrow. And it's fascinating that he talks about joy and sorrow together. Right? He talks about this godly sorrow. Right? Like Paul realizes when he had to send that letter to a church that was kind of living ungodly ways and unbiblical ways, it, it pained him to do so. Like he said, you know, he, he, he was, what did he say? Um, you know, um, he, Though I regretted it, I see that my letter hurt you, but I'm happy. It's like when you have to kind of give bad news out of that relationship, out of that love and out of that care, it, it, it stinks to have to give that bad news. But Paul is happy because when they got that news, when they read that letter and they realized, what have we been doing? How do we let our hearts get so far from God? How do we let our hearts get so far from the things that Paul and the other leaders have taught us? 
How did we let this false teaching creep into our church? Right? And there was probably, well, it's not probably, there definitely was, there was this moment of sorrow when they realized that. When I think of my own life, when I have kind of realized that I've allowed some sinful thoughts to creep into my life, when I've allowed certain things to kind of just creep into my heart, and when my eyes are open to that, there's, there's this moment of sorrow. There's this moment of, oh, I can't believe that's in there. I think I've shared this before, but one of the things that I've personally been dealing with kind of during this COVID pandemic is anger. It, it, I, I, I watch and, and, I, and I read and I, see, and I see different things going on in the world and, and this anger creeps in. And, and if I'm not guarded, if I'm not careful, that anger can take my thoughts in a place I don't want it to go. And I actually went back. I've been doing some Christian counseling. I'm a big fan of Christian counseling. I do it every few years. I think it's an important thing. And so I was talking to my counselor about it, and he's kind of, you know, kind of pushing on it and driving me and helping me dig into it. And it's like, man, whew. and when I kind of got to the root of where that anger was coming from, there was like this sorrow <laughs> that hit me. And I actually started weeping on my call with my counselor. Um, but it was godly sorrow. Because then it led me to repent of that anger, of the things I was letting to creep into my heart and to change my actions. See, that's the difference here between a godly sorrow. See, when, we're, when God reveals sin to us in our lives, when God reveals sin in a church, godly sorrow, it hits for a moment. But then we do something about it. We seek God in prayer. We turn from it. We draw closer to him. And it changes our lives individually and it changes the church, right? Whereas worldly sorrow, that guilt that you're no good, that shame that you, no one could love you, that idea that, oh, look at that sin in your life. You'll never be able to be used by God because of that sin. See, worldly sorrow leads to death. Because you have no place to bring it. It just dies within you and kills you spiritually and emotionally. And even physically sometimes when our guts react to that. Right? So we have to look at this godly repentance, uh, this godly sorrow, because godly sorrow brings us somewhere. It brings us to Jesus. It brings us to Jesus. I've seen amazing examples of that type of sor of that type of godly sorrow play out in the life of our church ever since I've been the pastor here. And again, not just for the individual, but corporately as a church. I remember a few years ago, the elders, we were working on kind of our strategic plan. We were working and, and praying and fasting and seeking God on where do we feel God is calling us to really focus our ministry so that we could see more and more people coming into a meaningful relationship with Christ. And one of the things that actually came out of that meeting was one of our elders shared the fact that in our church family, we had actually years ago lost an entire generation of our kids because, and this, this was coming from, from our elders. Our elders actually confessed this and repented of that. They said, we so loved the work of the church around us that we didn't even notice our children slipping away. 
And when, when that came out in our elders meeting, like there was weeping and there was prayer and there was turning to God. And that's why one of our core values now as a church is to be relevant, that we will be culturally relevant while being true to the teachings of scripture that we're not the church of tomorrow, that we're uh, sorry, not the church of yesterday. We're going to be the church of today. We have to be able to speak language that people understand. We have to be able to reach people from this culture today because we will not lose another generation again because we love our methods. We repented of that corporately in one of our meetings. We've prayed about that, that not on our watch, because we love our methods so much that we're willing to sacrifice the next generation. That was how that repented. And it actually changed so much of our methods. And I actually believe the changes that we put in place have actually prepared us for COVID. All this online stuff came out of that desire, out of that repentance, and came out of that action that took place. Right? I've seen us as, as, as a church, as leaders in our church, repent of past sin where years, years ago, long before I was ever here, there were a number of people who started lying about the pastor, who about started spreading rumors about them. People were attacking our staff and saying horrible things about them and to them. And, and man, when I learned about that, I was like, never again, never again. And we repented of that. We, we, thought, we, we searched God on that, that we're not going to be those, that type of Christian that ever does that. And we will love one another and build one another up and be a place of encouragement and to confront when we need to, but out of a loving relationship. Right? I've seen our church repent of past sexual sin that had such a profound impact in our church. And again and again and again, it's been amazing to see how repentance brings about action. It changes us. It changes how we live. It changes how we do ministry. And it changes how we reach people. And when we see that action in place, there's no greater joy for the church than seeing repentance in action. A few years ago, myself, a few of the staff members, and I believe a couple of our elders, we actually went on a five-course seminary training called, it was a graduate certificate of church health and evangelism. And in that training, and in those courses that we took, we really looked hard under the hood of our ministry here at Greenbelt on how we were making disciples who make disciples who make disciples, how we are a church that is truly leading people in knowing, living, and sharing Jesus. It's all three. can't just be one of the three or two of the three, all three, knowing, living, and sharing. And so many sobering statistics came out of that training that we went on. Like the vast majority of churches in Canada have not seen a single person come to faith in Jesus through their ministry. Most churches in Canada that are experiencing numerical growth, that's happening because Christians are leaving other churches to go to their church or new Christians are moving into the neighborhood and attending their church. It's not happening by reaching lost people. And I think what happens, well, not... I know it's what happens because we see it happening. The data shows us this. But churches that become so inward focused about themselves, suddenly the joy 
starts to go away. (laughs) There's nothing more exciting than a baptism service of hearing the story of people who've accepted Jesus. There's nothing more exciting than seeing a lukewarm Christian who just hasn't really just been kind of stuck in their faith, just seeing them turn and repent and then just seeing them on fire and serving God and changing how they live, right? Paul is adamant about this joy that um, knows no bounds, right? This joy that he talks about in verse 7, that my joy is greater than ever. That joy comes from seeing the church living out repentance that leads to action. So today, as we kind of conclude our time together, we're going to take communion together. You see, communion is a time when we, as followers of Jesus, we take bread and we take juice and we remember the body of Jesus broken for us. We remember the blood of Jesus spilled for us. But what's fascinating for me is when we look at Paul's teaching about communion, about the Lord's Supper, it's actually another opportunity that Paul is giving the Corinthian church to repent. <laughs> you see, we use these, excuse me, we use these verses here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, these beautiful verses about Jesus and Jesus in the upper room and Jesus breaking bread and sharing wine. And we read these verses and these verses are so powerful because we remember for a moment Jesus. But look at the words that Paul uses when he starts his teaching about the Lord's Supper. He says this, In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, he says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. We don't tend to read that part before we do communion. It's a call to repentance corporately. That Paul is saying, man, you guys, you Christians are getting together and what they were doing, they don't, they weren't doing communion the way we do communion with bread and juice. They were doing what's known more as a love feast. They were getting together for a meal. But because of the social classes, the cultural classes, this person's a Greek, this person's a Jew, this person's from a different country, all these different things, they would huddle in their people group that they like. And they would share a meal with the people they like, the people that are like them. And what we actually find out as we study this more is that the rich people were showing up and eating all the food before the poor people would show up because they didn't want to be with them. They didn't want to eat with them. And so Paul is giving them a chance to repent of that. (laughs) You see, in this thing, this love feast that you're doing as a family, I've got nothing good to say about the way that you're doing it. (laughs) You need to repent of that. You know, when you come together, he goes, he says in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a a church, there's divisions among you. And I believe it. You know, there's differences among you and all these things. You come together. It's not the Lord's Supper you eat. You're eating, you know, and some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. You know, one person, as a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Like Paul's like, repent, (laughs) don't do that. So that's why when we come to communion, we ask people to check their hearts. 
we ask people to check our hearts. Like when Paul, you know, he goes in here and he talks about this. When he talks about whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup in the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Verse 28 says everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the cup. Right? This is this moment for us to ask ourselves, have we repented before God? Have I accepted Christ as Savior? And maybe for you today, maybe the answer is no, I haven't done that. And you can do that so simply right where you are just by saying, God, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for this sin that keeps me alienated from you. Today, God, I give you my heart. Come into my life and make me new. And if you pray a prayer like that today, I would love to connect with you. A little pop-up shows up in the chat. Just click that. I would love to get some free resources to you. Or if you're watching us at any other time during the week, apart from Sunday morning, send me an email, kevin at greenbelt.church. I'd love to connect with you, pray for you, and get these resources to you. So that's the first thing that we do that we repent of. But then the second thing that for those of us who have done that, when we take this bread, when we remember the body of Christ broken for us, we take a moment and say, God, do I have anything that I need to confess before you? Do I have some unconfessed sin before God that I need to deal with? Do I have some things against the brother and sister in Christ that I need to reconcile on? That I need to seek forgiveness or I need to forgive somebody? Or corporately, do we have some stuff in our past that we need to deal with? Do we've got some stuff in our present that we're allowing to take root in our lives, in the life of our church that we need to deal with and get rid of? This is what this moment is for. So much more than a church tradition. So much more powerful than just something that we do once a month. Because a life of repentance will bring great joy to a church. Because it brings us godly sorrow for a moment. But then it leads to repentance. It leads to lives being transformed. So hopefully you've come prepared to take the bread and the cup together as a church family. So I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. We'll take the bread and we'll take the juice from wherever you're watching from. And then I'll conclude with just a couple of questions I want you to think about in your own life. So let's pray. Father God, I praise you and thank you for the body of Jesus that was broken for us. I praise you and thank you for the blood of Jesus that was built for us. Father, we remember today the words of Jesus when he said, when he held up bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And God, we're grateful for the words of Jesus when he held the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And so, Father, today as a church family, we repent of those sins that have kept us far from you. We repent of those sins that have kept us far from one another. We repent of the sins that have kept us from being able to truly reach lost people around us in our lives, in our city, and in our world. And so, Father, as we take this bread and as we take this cup together, just if we have to spend a moment in some godly sorrow, that's okay. Because we know that that godly sorrow will lead to life. And so, God, I pray that you would just do that in our hearts today as we take this bread.
there's no greater joy for the church than seeing repentance in action. That time when we have to look at our sin, that moment of godly sorrow, that leads to repentance, that leads to people coming to Jesus, a new life in Jesus, that you know, that, that godly sorrow that leads to us changing how we're living our lives, of seeing victory over sin in our life, of seeing transformation in our lives. That moment of godly sorrow when we realize that corporately as a church, we've, got, we've done something wrong and we need to make amends on that. Those things, man, it's incredible, incredible when a church lives that way because we see faith in action at those times. So I want to leave you with a couple of questions to ponder this week. These would be great to discuss in your life group. Talk about it with some people that are close to you. But here's a couple of questions I want to leave you with as we finish off today. The first question is this. Do you personally have some repenting to do? You know, I gave you a brief moment to do that during communion. But maybe for you, there's something more that you need to do. There's something more that you need to deal with. You know, is there something that you need to personally be repenting of? Maybe some, some, thing that you, some way that you've treated someone, way that you've talked about someone, way you've been thinking about someone. And as you even just ponder that, even before kind of making those amends, just ask yourself, if I were to actually lean into this, would that bring me more joy in my walk with God right now? If I could just get freedom on this, if I could let this go, if I could find healing in this relationship, if I could just repent of this, how could that lead to more joy, right? Changing my actions, changing my identity, changing that who I am in Christ. So do you personally have some repenting to do? That's the first thing. And the second question is this, how could God use you personally to help other people come into repentance? How could God use you personally to see other people come to repentance? And again, the same follow-up question to that is, how could that lead to more joy in your life? See, that seems to be the source of Paul's joy, is seeing this repentance, of seeing this transformation. And I believe more and more and more... (laughs) as I look at the world around us, as I see the strife and the chaos that's going on all over the world, is that our world needs more of the church that is on fire for Jesus. Our world is desperate for the message that we have, and it takes all of us, all of us together as a church family to do our part to see repentance come into the world. Those moments of godly sorrow, but that will lead to incredible joy because there's no greater joy for the church than seeing repentance in action. Let's pray. So Father God, again, I praise you and thank you so much for this Greenbelt Online platform where we could worship together as a family from all over the world. And Father, uh, for those who even today put their faith in Jesus, God, we celebrate you for that. We praise you, God, for that. And God, for those of us that are wrestling with this topic of repentance that, and, and that godly sorrow that wants to, that will creep in, <laughs> it will creep in. And God, help us all to lean into that, that this is a good thing, 
when we feel those for a moment. It's a good thing because it changes how we live. It changes how you work in us and through us when we allow that type of sorrow to sink in because it transforms us. It transforms the people around us. And God, you use it for your joy. You use it for our joy. You use it for the building of your kingdom here on earth. And so, Father God, as we continue to worship together today, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to all of us, that we wouldn't sign off from this service all kind of beating ourselves down, but we would leave this this service today uplifted because of the time that we spent in your presence. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.